Welcome to the First Baptist Church podcast. We're excited to share this weekend's conversation with you from Pastor Jerry Hendricks. If you would like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to fbcsweetwater.org. I learned something about myself this week. I am not good at multitasking. But hey, get this. I learned something about you this week. You're not good at multitasking. I learned that multitasking is the ability to mess two things up at once. You know, I've really tried hard at this multitasking. I, this year, I decided to subscribe to Audible so I could listen to books when I was in the car. And so I did that, and I've been I'm like my third month, and I got a book that I'm listening to called Deep Work. And then I realized it's really hard to understand a book about deep work when you're driving on I-20. You miss a lot. So I'm really reevaluating this whole listening to books while I'm doing other things. This idea of multitasking is important to us because we're trying to develop this theme of one thing throughout our church and our life. I learned that in the 1960s is where the, we first began using the word multitasking, and it wasn't talking about people. It was talking about computers. In the 1960s, they built this computer that the computer speed was 10 megahertz. That just means it was a little faster than dial-up. And if you don't know what dial-up is, Google it later. And so multitasking was the ability of a computer to use one central computer unit and perform several tasks. But they performed those tasks alternately, not simultaneously. And that's the key. But we think that in our multitasking that we're ha- we have this ability to perform tasks simultaneously, listening to a book and driving a car. But what we're learning is, is that we do not have that ability. And they've started to study this starting around 2009. They've done numerous studies on this because a lot of companies were hiring people on their ability to multitask. In fact, in major corporations, one of the first questions in an interview was for that person to evaluate their ability to multitask. Well, you think about it. You think about your abilities and, and start thinking about your experiences of things that you do that you might qualify as multitasking. Begin to think, begin to ask yourself if you're really doing things simultaneously or if you're merely alternating. One of the images for us is the idea of the experience of juggling. Because juggling, if, any, if anything that we might observe looks like multitasking, it might be juggling. But the, jug, the way you juggle is by, is by throwing one ball up in the air and catching it. It's one task, repeated alternately. In fact, I don't know if you've tried juggling, but if you start, if you aspire to juggle this afternoon, and you begin... One of the first things that a juggler would have you do is to throw an object in the air at the same height each time and catch it. When we think about the scripture that we've been studying in Ephesians chapter 4, and more specifically the writer of this scripture, Paul the Apostle, I think 
he serves as a model for us, an example for us of a person who understands this idea of, of, of the ability to do and to focus his life on one thing. Now, any of us that know his life, and we read Acts and all of his letters, we imagine Paul as a person who is very active. One characterization for him might be a type A personality. He has a lot of things going on. There's a lot of things on his schedule and a lot of things that he's responsible for. There's a lot of people that he's responsible for. And he embraces all of those, but he embraces them for one thing. That they might know Christ. Now you may have a different idea of Paul. As you study his life and his experiences, you might find some, uh, some other things that he's mentioned in his experience that he strives toward or that he tries to attain. But we do know that there's one thing that he declared very, very openly is that his object in life was to know Christ. That's his one thing. As we search through our life, of all the tasking that we might give ourselves the hope is is that we too might take our faith life and look deep enough into our life, long enough into our life, that we discover that one thing that's going to drive our faith, our faith life experience. Now we know that ultimately there are going to be multiple things that form from that one thing. Those other things that develop from that one thing become the one thing to help you accomplish the one thing. Is that confusing? Let me try it this way. Paul said, his object in life is to know Christ. And then he said, and the power of his resurrection. How does Paul know Christ? He knows it through understanding the power of his resurrection. Now, you do read Paul, and you will understand uh, that one of the most important parts of his theology is the resurrection of Jesus. I think it's personal, first of all. My my own thought is that it's personal to him that he understands it, but it was also important for the life of the church to understand it at the time it was developing. Because there were different lines of thought about what had happened there. But that one thing is crucial to our faith. And Paul said, my one thing is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I know one thing. And because I pursue that one thing, here's another thing that can help me pursue that one thing. A lot of times the way we approach our faith life is a lot like he describes it in Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning, we're going to read Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. And as we read that, if you've been with us throughout these weeks, or if you've read through Ephesians 4 through the daily readings and connected with us in that way, what you're going to see is this pattern in his life. There's certain things that he's emphasizing that are important to the life of the church, to the strength of the church, and really to the overall health of the church. He talks about the importance of love in the life of a church and a believer. He talks about the importance of unity. We've covered that. But he also talks about things that distract us or trip us up or keep us from our pursuit of that one thing. Now here's what I want us to understand about that this morning as we wrap up this series on one thing. Don't let your life be so focused on the things that distract you from the one thing that you miss the one thing. 
So the way this passage lays itself out before us today is this. Starting in verse 25, he's going to talk about some things that if, if we're not careful, they will distract us and keep us from the one thing. And then in chapter 2, the first two verses, he's going to lay before us an idea for the one thing for our life. I still like the principle of beginning with the end in mind. It's worked well in my life. It helps me to kind of understand things, how things work together in, in life. And I think Paul does that for us in this particular passage. He opens up this one thing for us and what this one thing is going to be about. And when he does that, he sets the bar extremely high for us. In fact, it's so high that there's no way that we can attain it on our own. We can only do it through the help and the, through the power of Christ in our life. That's a great place to be if you're a follower of Jesus. Not depending and relying upon your own strength, but rather depending and relying upon the strength of God in your life through His Spirit. But in getting to that one thing, he talks about things that can trip us up. It's helpful in our life to be aware of those things. Because one of the realities of our life is, oftentimes, there's one thing that trips us up repeatedly. And we find ourselves in this cycle of experience that continues to drag us down and to keep us from the pursuit that we really want our life to be about as a follower of Jesus. But we can't take our eye off the pursuit of Christ. Because if we do that, then the object of the distraction becomes our one thing. There comes a time in our life when we pursue Christ that our life merges with His intent and His purpose for our life. And when we become so laser-focused and intent with our life on that, passionate about it, then these other matters begin to be deflected more easily in our life. For one, God will show us those things that most distract us. Because here's my fear, is that when we open this text in just a moment and we read through this list, you're going down a mental checklist in your life going, applies to me, doesn't apply to me, never had problems with this one. And that's not what Scripture's about. It's about giving us some examples of things in our experience that keep us from the one thing. So don't let your list be limited to these verses. You examine, let God examine your own heart this morning and you determine uh, before yourself and God those things that you know distract you and really those things that you know distract you over and over and over. You ready for the verses? I thought so. Ephesians chapter 4. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For if we are all members of one body, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands and, what they may have, and that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome 
talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just, in Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then he says this in, verse, in chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Your text may have used the word imitate God. Our goal is to be not a God. We've seen how that worked out in scripture. But to be like God. So when those who do not know God see us in the world, they see God in the world. We're their connection to who God is by the way that we live our life. And in this pursuit, we try to discover this one thing. And in, in, in making this discovery, we, we find that our responsibility lies for, first and foremost in our own way of describing the one thing of God, of, of us imitating God in the world. One way that that looks, one idea, one concept. The way we've described it in our church is that we want to be the first responders of God's love to the world. We want to be that to be the way that we respond to, to people. We see that in the life of Jesus. He encounters a woman caught in adultery. His response? Compassion. There was nothing in there that said that, God, that Jesus judged her until he asked her to go and confess her sins. The first responders of God's love. That's our expression. That's the way that we want to say it here so that we can easily identify with what, what we're about as being a part of First Baptist Church. We want that to be clear and we want to say it often and live it regularly. But we do, in doing that, we need every one of us to find our own expressions in understanding that. And participating in that. And bringing that into the world so that God can experience Christ through us. That was Paul's experience. When you examine the path of his life and you see what he did over and over and over. That's what people understood about him. They understood the resurrection because they saw the resurrection in his life. They may not have known what the power of the resurrection might have meant, but when they saw his passion and his love and the way that he cared for them and tried to help them to develop as a church, they saw the power of the resurrection through his life. So the question comes back to us. What is the reflection of God that people see in our life? And that's where we come up with this list. These things that distract. And, and they don't become just a distraction to us in our pursuit. They also potentially become a distraction to others who might not encounter Christ. And so he goes through this list. What I find interesting about his progression in this list is that not all of this stuff is just turned in, into a negative thing for us. 
So you don't have a problem with stealing. You don't, you, know, you don't struggle with taking things that don't belong to you. Now, we're not counting the time that you may be stealing from your employer but not doing work, are we? But he says, don't just think about the stealing or the negative idea or the negative concept, but rather think about what you're put here in this, in, in this position to accomplish so that you might be a contributor to the community. Because in the community that we come from, there are needs that exist. There are needs that we need to be the first responders to through God's love. And we want to position ourselves in the community and in our relationship with Christ where we can not only see those needs and recognize those needs, but we can respond to those needs. Some of those needs we'll be able to respond to as individuals. We can see a need and fill it right where we are, on our way to work, at work, whatever it is that we're doing. Sometimes there are needs that are so big that we take them on as a congregation, and we want to be doing that multiple, multiple times. When we experience this, we're not just trying to remove the distractions, but we're, we're, we're trying to focus on the one thing that God's called us to, and when we focus on those one things then the things that we can do become more and more apparent to us. Paul talked about the freedom that we have in Christ. And I think when we read these verses, these verses about the things that distract us, I think he's trying, he comes at this from this spirit of, of knowing the freedom that we have in Christ because a lot of times we're guilty of just creating these lists of things that we can do and things that we cannot do in the kingdom of God and things that we ought to be in the kingdom of God and things that we ought not be. And if someone else does something that we think ought not be, then we think that's wrong in sin and they may, not be, they may be in a reckless pursuit of God and not see anything wrong with what they're doing. List building in the kingdom of God doesn't work very well. So we identify ourselves with Christ in pursuit of Him to discover the one thing for us. And in doing that, we want to remove these things that keep us from accomplishing His purpose in the world. There's nothing wrong with being angry. In fact, I may sound a little angry this morning. I'm not. I can just hear a child saying, that sounds like his angry voice. There's nothing wrong with anger for injustice. Anger over the way someone is treated. Or, over, or anger over the things that we may see happening in our world. There is a holy anger. I believe Jesus was angry when he goes to the temple and he sees everyone treating it like it's, uh, like it's some market that, that he never intended it for it to be. And see, so he sees the misuse of that. The misuse of his temple. And so he turns over some tables, and it's written about, and, and people talked about it, and I'm sure it got attention. And if you would have asked someone, Jesus was angry. The anger there was not sin. It was over the misuse of the temple. When we think about our life, we know that there's things that trigger in us. And we know that that, that that stirs up our anger. And maybe we ought to be, uh, to be confessional of those things, confessing of those things. But anger in and of itself about the right things is not wrong. So let's be careful of the things we decide to become angry over. 
You with me on that? Be careful about the things that we choose to be angry over because we're in pursuit, a relentless pursuit of the one thing. He also talks about falsehood. He mentioned that earlier in the text when he talked about speaking the truth in love. And it's this understanding that as God's people, we're all truthful people and we treat each other honestly. And we treat each other with integrity. And that ought to be the character of a person who follows Jesus. It's not just a matter of a person checking off the, their, their obedience to the Ten Commandments. We talked about that in the, rich, in the young ruler's life. But rather, it's that intent of a person's heart when they do something and when they talk in the community and when they represent themselves in the community. It's that matter of being truthful, representing yourself with honesty and integrity in the way that you do life. It will be misunderstood sometimes, but that is never motive for us to not act truthfully. Put away falsehood. And then he mentions bitterness. This is anger gone bad. It's anger that just stays in one place and just festers and, ten, and continues to build. And there's things that you may be sitting here today realizing as I talk about this that you may be bitter over something that's been stored in your life for a long, long time. And I would just say to you, you better put that away. It's time for that to be put away. And I'm not saying it's impossible for you to pursue that one thing if you're harboring bitterness in your heart. But I will tell you this. It's going to make it extremely difficult because that becomes your one thing. Your bitterness, not your pursuit of God. He also contextualizes this in, in a way of, in this experience of helping others. So he says, don't steal. So, so don't take away from things that aren't yours, whether it's your time or your financial resources or possessions. But rather, use your time, resources, and possessions to better someone else, to advance the kingdom of God through meeting needs and helping people. The heartbeat of our life ought to be that kind of heartbeat. The heartbeat of our church ought to resonate with that. And we ought to strive to do that in as many ways as we can, through as many people as we can, as God mobilizes us to take his word into the world. Help those in need. If you don't know anyone in need, then your eyes aren't open. Everywhere we go, we see people in need. Every time we, we hear something said or hear something spoken, there's a need being spoken. And we need to be people who are not just sensitive to that and hear it and become hearers only, but we need to be people who respond to that and do something. We need to encourage one another. I know that one of the things that distracts in my life more than anything else is sarcasm. I'm speaking truthfully to you. I learned this at some point that sarcasm can become negative. It's never really intended to be sarcasm. I'm not sure when sarcasm was invented, but I know Jerry Seinfeld really influenced it. If you don't know who Jerry Seinfeld is, Google it after the service. I'm trying to be aware of dated references. That was sarcasm. Was that sarcasm? But I came to a place in, in working with my interns, again, uh, when we were on staff, I said, I realize that I am sarcastic about things, even about, you know, bringing correction to what we're doing or if someone messes up. And you have to be careful with that. 
my children, I think, inherited a high degree of sarcasm. And I can remember my son, when he was in high school, he came home one day, he said, Dad, you know that some people think sarcasm is negative? I go, yeah, I learned that. He said, yeah, me too. I think I made somebody cry today. I know that that's something in my life I have to be aware of and that it can be overdone. Most of the time, it's intended for humor. That's the way I, I intend it. But I know that sometimes it's not always received that way. That one is on the watch list for my life. I'm well aware of that. If you ever catch me, you have freedom to bring correction to me and accountability and full accountability here. He says, speak encouraging words to one another. Say things to people that about them that they may not see in their self. One of the things that we've done here uh, in our staff since I've been here is that we encourage the ask. And the reason we encourage the ask is, in other words, ask someone to do something, is because sometimes they never see something in their own life that we may see in them. I think that's what encouraging is. I think that's the, at the very heart of what encouraging is all about, is recognizing something in someone else that they may not see in their self. And so we become this place that kind of flows with these, these, these characters of God. Moving into a world that's not that way. And maybe your workplace or your neighborhood or even your family, maybe they're not that way. But in pursuit of, of Christ, in our goal to imitate Him, then we take on these characteristics that not only keep us from being distracted from our faith walk, but also keep others from being distracted on who God really is. Paul said, be imitators of God. He said, look like God. We acknowledge we can't do that without the help of God. I think, I believe that our church, to the best of our ability, it demonstrates that in the world. And just this morning, we had an experience I want to share with you about. I know that a lot of times our church, we're at a place where you may not know everyone who's in the room. And that becomes challenging. But we know that there's a lot of things that are going on in different people's lives. And we just trust that we're, we create a structure where God's working and God's moving. And God's meeting needs through the lives of the people who are here. This morning we had one of our children come to class and uh, she started talking to Lisa. And so Lisa and her went to a, a separate room. And Shelby Lynn received Christ this morning. Now, yeah, I think that's appropriate. Now, I want to share. I told Lisa, I said, I'm going to call you out of the front. I said, I don't really know how I'm going to land the plane on this. But, but we want to acknowledge the work of God in our presence. Nothing, I guarantee you, Lisa's going to have a good day today. I'm going to have a good day because I got to share in this, and we want you to be able to share in this. One of the things that Lisa shared with her was this. She said, Shelby, who are some of the people throughout your life here at the church have helped you to know more about Christ? Well, and here's the truth. Shelby, she was all ready to pray a prayer. She had really already made this decision in her heart. She knew all what, what it was all about. We just nailed it down today. So February 3rd, 2019, no doubt, Shelby made this decision.
in that process, there are people who poured into her. And they poured into her because they had one thing that their life was about. It wasn't about teaching a class or driving a bus or, or getting things, snacks ready. It wasn't about going out to P3. It was about pursuing Christ. And in that pursuit, someone coming to know him. To join them in that pursuit. So this is going to mess up the order just a bit. But Shelby, would you come here? And let's stand down here. Lisa, would you come down here? And some of the people that we talked about that had influenced Shelby's life since she's been here. Uh, you're in fourth grade now, right? Yes. So fourth grade class. So Debbie, you come on over. Uh, Sharon, I think you were one of her teachers. Steven, Steve Hill, or all the way, come on down, all the way down. Stephen May. Stephen May. If you've, if, you've, if you've been a part of this, just come down here and stand with her. Miss Beth. Miss Beth uh, was her, uh, yeah, sits with her on Sundays. Look, I know sometimes we sit back and say, well, you know, I don't know what to do. There's things to do. I know not long ago we had a, a student accept Christ and we announced it on Wednesday night and Miss Beth said, that's, that's whose prayer card I've had this semester. I call her Pastor Beth. So, okay. <laughs> Let's just celebrate right now. Let's thank God for this. Then when we finish, uh, we'll have a time of offering. Um, and sing a song and just celebrating what God's doing here. Um, and then before you go, just come say, how, just tell her how much you love her. Let's pray. God, we rejoice in the things that you're doing in our presence. And God, nothing's more clear today than this decision that Shelby's made and shared with us. God, we thank you for these that stand here with her. And others, Lord, that have stood with her throughout her time here that have helped her to know Jesus. God, I pray that you would help all of us to continue to take this spirit and demonstrate it everywhere that we go. Let us, God, really drill down on that one thing in our life that will make a difference in your world. God, we celebrate. We celebrate your work. We celebrate your resurrection as we understand it today and know that through that we have new life. And we thank you for the new life of Shelby. We pray in Jesus' name.